for lorries coming from the docks. They'd hijack it, threaten the driver, then drive the lorry into town, strip it down and sell the goods inside. I've blocked out most memories of my father, who seemed to solve every problem with his fists. Evenings, he'd come home from work, shout at my mum, smack me and my brother, kick shit, then go out with his mates to plan another robbery. One of the few things I remember is hiding under the kitchen table while he went on one of his rampages. He was in and out of prison constantly, and most of my relationship with him was through iron bars during 2 p.m. visiting hours at the lock-up. The fact that my mum married him still confounds me, because she and my dad came from opposite ends of the social universe— Mum was raised in an affluent family from a town called Brentwood, four stops farther out from London on the Tube. Her great-granddad started the printing trade in London and had once been mayor of West Ham. She grew up on country estates surrounded by cricket lawns, but the wild and my dad attracted her, so she gave up that life, moved to Romford, where she still lives, and stuck by him until he died in 1994. I've got a brother who's five years older than me. Today he's a member of London Metropolitan Police, which is ironic because growing up all our role models were criminals. It wasn't like your friend Billy's dad was, say, a lawyer or a dentist. His old man worked in the same factory and was a member of the same firm. Rough blokes and crime were all we knew. So we drifted into it. I started at age eight. I'd find out what kind of novelty erasers the kids in my school wanted, Star Wars figures were the craze, pinch them from a store and sell them for eighty pence when they cost a pound each in the store. The kids would save twenty pence, I'd pocket eighty, pure genius. As a teenager I took the same business model I'd used for erasers and applied it to cars. We called it ringing. A client would come to me looking to buy a black 1985 911 Porsche. He didn't want to go to a dealer and pay £70,000, so he'd asked me, can you fix me up? Sure, sir, right on it. My mates and I would cruise through London looking for that particular make, model and colour. Back then all you had to do was drop a jockey strick down the window and pull the lock. Later, when the Germans developed central locking, my mates and I came up with our own ingenious feat of engineering. We'd cut a tennis ball in half, press it against the driver's side lock and push it down until it created a vacuum. Then we'd smack the ball with a ping-pong paddle to force air into the locking system and pop the locks. The funny part was when guys like us who clearly weren't from the level of society to play tennis went into the hardware store to buy twenty tennis balls. After hot-wiring the car, we'd drive it to a shop we had in one of the tunnels near the East London locks. The archways there housed various mechanics and members of the motor trade. You might have seen them depicted in the 1971 film Get Carter, where Michael Caine plays a British gangster revenging the death of his brother. Bloody brilliant. We'd back the car in, pop the hood, chisel off the old plate with the VIN number on it, and replace the plate with a new one with a new number. We had a friend called Twinsy who worked at the Brit version of the DMV, known as the DVLA. We'd ring up Twinsy and read him the new number. Twinsy would type it into his big clunky computer and re-register the car so everything appeared on the up-and-up. The new owner would get a logbook or certificate in the post. For a car of that quality, we charged £20,000. 
ten would go to the firm, ten would land in our pockets. The point was to flip the cars as quickly as possible. No new paint jobs or changes of tyres or hoods. Just pop off the old plate and re-register it nice and tidy. I started this at fourteen. My crew consisted of myself, Curtis, Barry and Gary. Curtis is now a reputable real estate agent in London. Barry is a fireman and still a total character. He's the kind of guy who, if your house is on fire and he shows up, throws extra gasoline on it and files an insurance claim. Because Barry ain't saving it. Gary remained on the dark side and became one of the biggest drug dealers in East London. Last time I saw him, about ten years ago... He was living large with a big house in the country and an estate in Marbella, Spain, on the Costa del Crime. We call it that because all the criminals went there before Spain and the UK signed an extradition treaty. Now, guys.